Good evening, everyone. I want to thank Father Connor for inviting me tonight. Um, this place is amazing. This chapel is absolutely beautiful. And even the coffee house down the, the way here, everything looks so great here. He's obviously doing a lot of hard work, and uh, I'm sure you know how blessed you are to have him. Um, I should tell you right off the bat, this weekend I had laryngitis. <laughs> so if my voice sounds a little strange, I apologize, but at least it's here. And so we're going to do our best. So it may sound like I'm sad at times, and I may actually be sad at times, but you'll have to figure out whether I'm really sad or just struggling with laryngitis. Um, so, and another thing, you know, you know you're getting older when you need to look at your notes to remind yourself of your own life. So that's what I'm going to do as well. I don't want to leave anything out. Um, but also I want to thank Becca for helping me uh, come as well. She was great at arranging everything. And to the students, I know you have a lot of academic pressures, I was a student once, and I always felt like whatever I was doing, I should be studying. <laughs> so uh, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> so I'd like to talk to you about my background a bit. I want you to know that I'm a lot like you, actually. I think sometimes we think people who are miraculously cured or from faraway lands or live perfect lives or just seem so different from us. And I want you to know that, that I'm like you. And if God can perform a miracle in my life, he certainly can in yours, and maybe he already has, but I, I don't want you to think for one minute that I'm something so unique and, and different. <laughs> um, so I want to tell you about my background, and then um, I want to talk about my devotion to Newman and how it all began, and then of course the miracle. And what I'd like to do as well is open it up for questions at the end. I know you're all really smart, so I'm excited about the tough questions you could ask. And I don't want you to be shy. Go ahead and ask. If I don't know it, I'll just say I don't know it. Um, <clears throat> so my background. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. That's where I was born. And as Father Connor said, I went to Washington University in St. Louis. I studied economics and graduated magna cum laude. I also studied uh, political economy and minored in the classics. After, um, after college, which is, by the way, where I met my husband, David, I got a job at the Fed here in Chicago and I was an associate economist there for a couple of years. I forecasted a lot of data for the Board of Governors. So my job was trying to figure out what the unemployment rate was going to do, or GDP. It sounds very exciting. But I sat at a computer by myself, typing in numbers all day, and hardly saw any human beings. So I decided um, that I wanted to go to law school. It was something I had always wanted to do. But I had worked because the market was so great. And you know, when you're in college, it's fun to think about finally making some money <laughs> for once. So I went to law school after that, and I went to Penn Law School, uh, the Ivy League Law School, which interestingly enough is the site of the first Newman Center in America. I did not know that when I was there. Isn't God funny? Uh, so I was there, and I was studying, and law school was extremely difficult. Um, I loved it, though. I loved the challenge of it, but it was hard, and I learned so much there. Um, but I was up late in the night, sometimes three in the morning, and I still had so much more to do because we had to master everything. It wasn't just enough to skim through the material. You know what this is like as students, and it's, you know, you don't know at that point are you supposed to say your evening prayers or your morning prayers. So I thought, I, I came up with a great question. I was going to ask the priest at the Newman Center, which was actually called the Church of St. Agatha, Agatha and St. James. 
So I didn't, like I said, I didn't know I was at the Newman Center. I was going to ask him, what do you do when you have so much schoolwork and you feel like you don't have time to pray? And I thought, well, maybe he'll say, you know, you've got to do well in school. Just study, and when you're done studying, then you can find God. He'll be waiting for you, perhaps. And of course, that would be the wrong answer. And this holy man said, if you feel like you don't have enough time to pray, then you should pray twice as much. And I thought that was so brilliant and courageous of him, you know, as a student. He must have known that I was looking for an easy way out. But I took his advice, it was great advice, and I kept praying, and I got through it somehow. But I missed David, and that first year at Penn was the year of the 9-11 attacks. So I felt very far from home, and I wanted to be closer to him. So I transferred to Northwestern Law School, and, um, and then I went back to Chicago. I finished Northwestern, and I started working for a federal judge after that. I had also worked for the Army JAG Corps while I was in law school at the Pentagon, which was exciting. Um, but then I worked for a federal judge and helped him manage his caseload. And then I went into private practice, commercial defense litigation. One of my biggest clients was LVMHSA, which is the parent company of Louis Vuitton. So this was all very exciting work. But as soon as I had a baby, the thing that I hungered for most, the most excitement that I wanted in my life, was to be at home with my son. Uh, and that has provided the most joy, is being a mother. And I think when you find your true vocation, that's where you find your happiness. I'm not saying everybody in this room will want to be at home necessarily with their children, but I hope that you all find your vocation, and I would pray hard about that. Um, and it's been a, a great joy. I have seven children. My oldest is 13, so I have a 13, 11, 9. They're always having birthdays, so I have to go slowly. 9, 8, 5, 3, and 10-month-old. So it's a very busy house. And I homeschool them, which I never would have imagined that I would be homeschooled. But my oldest son, who's 13, finished Calculus two last year in seventh grade at North Central College got the highest grade in class. So whatever you do, go all out. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and it's a lot of fun that way. And God will give you all the grace you need. I'm serious. Okay, so my devotion to Newman, where does this all start, right? Well, in 2000, I was ironing my clothes for that job at the Federal Reserve Bank, you know, plugging in the numbers. And I turned on the TV, and on the TV there was a show on EWTN on Cardinal Newman. I had never really heard of him before, and there were all these priests and scholars talking about his life, and what a holy and amazing man he was. And I thought it was fascinating. And they said that this was a seven-part series on him. And I couldn't believe that they would have seven shows on a cardinal. He wasn't even a saint. I mean, you know, most saints don't get seven shows. So I thought that was interesting. But I did not start praying to him at this time. I, I found him fascinating, and I didn't understand a lot of what they were talking about. See, you're in great hands. Father Connor has already taught you about the Oxford movement and the Tractarian movement. But when I heard those words, I didn't know what they were talking about. So I wasn't taken by it all the way. I was fascinated, but not enough to really understand everything that was going on. So it made an impression on me, though, and I would say that he was um, kind of like a St. Thomas Aquinas figure to me at that point, if that makes any sense to anyone, where you admire him, you know he's brilliant, but you don't necessarily think of him in a personal way. 
maybe some of you have a personal relationship with St. Thomas Aquinas, but to me he just seems like this brilliant figure that it seems like he lived a long time ago. Well, and then, so what happened was, is, as you know, he was beatified in 2010, and I wanted to watch it on TV, and I put on EWTN to watch it, and for some reason when I put it on, I started to cry. Now remember, I didn't have a devotion to him, so it was very odd to me, so I decided to record it, and I thought, well, I'll watch this at another time, and I would try to watch it again, and I would start to cry again. So I could never watch it. I still haven't watched the beatification, just for the record. <laughs> but it was like, the best way I can describe it, it was like seeing a friend that I had always already known, but finally seeing that friend that I had already known. It doesn't make sense, right? But that's how I felt. And I just thought that was unusual, but I went on with my life with kids. There's so much else to think about and keep you busy. So I didn't think about it too much. But in 2011, then, the following year, my husband David brought home two holy cards with his image on them. And uh, I put one in our family room and I put one in our bedroom upstairs. Um, the funny thing is I'm sure David brought two home, one for him and one for me, right? And I grabbed both of them. <laughs> That's the give and take of marriage. My husband's a very nice man. Um, so, and the, the image is, um, I'll see if I have it in here, a picture of Cardinal Newman wearing red. Um, it's not the, the famous picture by Millier, but this one that is actually, it's interesting because nobody knows who did this. So if you ever want to find out, it'd be great to let me know, but I've asked everybody, nobody knows. And I'm not suggesting this is the, the best image, but this is the one that I saw and it meant a lot to me. And the reason I really liked it um, is because I felt like he looked very modern. And by that, I don't mean that he was living with the times, but I mean, it looked like a picture that you could take on your phone today. And when I saw his face in the house, I saw a face that looked very responsive to my emotions. If I felt sad and I looked at him, it looked like he also felt sad. If I felt happy about something, I looked at him and I thought, he looks happy for me. And I'm not saying his face literally changed. It was the same, but it looked like he could hear everything that I was saying and he was there for me. And so we grew very close in the house, in the midst of laundry and cooking lunch and teaching the kids. And um, I would talk to him about anything. And we were living the days together, growing very close. And I would pray to him for the needs of people um, that I heard needed things, jobs, or their health. And I would just talk to him. And I, um, whatever feast day it was, I would look that up and I would read his works. And that's where my devotion even deepened because I first you know, had heard of him on EWTN and then I fell in love with his holy face. But I read his works and he could explain Jesus in a way that was so profound, but so simple and made so much sense. It was like what I would say if I had the skills to do it. You know, it made sense to me. It, it, everything was beautiful. He always could describe Jesus in a, such a loving light. And... Uh, so I, I was thankful to Newman because I was learning more about Jesus and growing closer to him as well. And that's ultimately the purpose of saints, right? Is to help us get closer to Jesus. Um, and then I would read about his letters. And I noticed that he wrote so many letters to people. So throughout all these times of suffering, like Father Connor was explaining when he was alone, he never stopped being there for other people. Um, he cared about their health physically, 
their spiritual health, um, whatever was going on in their lives. And now they've discovered he's written 21,000 letters. And they're still finding letters. And he could have never imagined that all of these would necessarily be public. So he didn't do this to look good, you know, so that we would all admire his saintly life. But he did it out of a genuine love for souls. And I thought, wow, I could be like one of those ordinary people in his life. I could be like one of those people that he wrote letters to, an ordinary mom, because he cared about moms and just regular people and poor people, sick people. Even though he's this colossal genius, this towering intellectual, he never lost sight of the fact that everybody was a child of God in his eyes. He cared about all of them. So I found comfort in his letters, that if these people could get his attention, so could I. And he was always there for me. And one of the passages that I read early on that meant a lot to me was this, and I'll read it to you. I found this, by the way, all these writings of his on this website called newmanreader.org. And it has all of his works on there. And what's amazing about it is they're all there for free. So as I've said, when you, when you go to this website, it was like finding gold in the backyard. Because I was already just thinking this man's so holy, and now I could read all of his works. And I literally wanted to run outside and just tell the neighbors, you'll never believe this. You can go on newmanreader.org and look all of this up. And I did. I looked outside at the trees, and I thought about that. And then, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'll just wait till another time to do that. Um, so this passage meant a lot to me <clears throat> that he wrote. He wrote, it is the boast of the Catholic religion that it has the gift of making the young heart chaste. And why is this? but that it gives us Jesus Christ for our food and Mary for our nursing mother. Fulfill this boast in yourselves. Prove to the world that you are following no false teaching. Vindicate the glory of your mother Mary, whom the world blasphemes in the very face of the world by the simplicity of your own deportment and the sanctity of your words and deeds. Well, I was a nursing mother, and he said Mary was a nursing mother. And he would certainly not say anything bad about Mary. So if he said something good about Mary, it must be a good thing. So that means he found value in what I was doing as a nursing mother. And I thought that was exciting. Again, I could fit within his realm of friends. And what I love about this is it's really revealing about Newman when he says, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to change the world. By how? By the simplicity of our deportment. (laughs) Being simple. And the sanctity of our words and deeds. You know, in those personal relationships, those little moments, you can do so much. So this meant a lot to me, hearing that he had written, or reading that he had written about Mary's our nursing mother. And so I just want you to know that I think what really helped in my devotion with him, and I think it would help with any saint, is to, and I think a lot of people want to know, well, how do I get a close relationship with a saint? What, what's the secret? What do you have to do? <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, God's very mysterious, so praise God for this gift. It's certainly a gift. I mean, you know, you can't just turn on a switch, and I'm very thankful for this gift and to share it with you. But I think it does help to try to have a clean heart. You know, try to go to confession as often as you can and avoid sin. You think of the saints, and they're in heaven, and they're holy. So the language they speak is the language of holiness. So in order to communicate with someone, you need to speak their language. 
So you want to try to be as holy in your heart as you can. And I think that facilitates that relationship where they can hear you and you can hear them. They can always hear you, of course, but it's you. You're the one that needs to hear what they have to say to you. And so I would encourage you to do that. And it's easier said than done, I know, but we're always trying. And Newman said, to be perfect is to have changed often. So never give up. And also he said that the true Christian will deny himself daily, himself or herself. And that means it's going to be little things. Obviously you can't commit heroic acts on a daily basis. But, you know, try to find little ways where you can put yourself second or even third. And it'll build up your strength to avoid sin. That's the great thing. And you'll actually look forward to making more offerings. And then it gets harder because you like doing it. So then is it an offering? You see, you're all very smart, so it's like a philosophical question. But then, of course, you've got to pray. You've got to pray, and that's the obvious one. And you can pray, and it doesn't have to be profound. As you'll find out when I get into my miracle in a minute, my words were not profound, but they were from the heart. And that's what prayer is. It's words from the heart. And sometimes life is difficult, and you think, gosh, I don't know how to express myself. Just try. Just start. God knows your heart, and that's the most important thing. So now I want to talk about my miracle and how that started. Um, I had a miscarriage in January of 2013. Um, 2013 is the year I was miraculously cured. As soon as I found out I was pregnant in January, this would have been my fifth child, I went to the doctor and there was no heartbeat. So I was devastated. The baby had already passed. And the doctor said, well, maybe there's a chance the baby's still young enough that the heart hasn't developed, so we'll monitor the situation. Well, for three weeks we monitored the situation and there was no heartbeat. So that was very sad, of course. And I had this devotion to Newman, as I said, since the Holy Cards came home in 2011. So I've been praying to him daily for almost a year, year and a half. And I reached out to him and I said, Cardinal Newman, I need you to help me. I've already lost this baby. I'm going to lose the baby. But I need to keep my faith. I don't want to lose my faith with the baby. I want to know that Jesus still loves me. And I want to still be a Catholic. And I want to still love him. And I need you to make sure that this all stays intact. And I know you can do it. Because I know Newman's felt sad before. Rejected, confused. And you've heard of people who've had difficult experiences in their lives, and then they've stopped believing in God. Because they say, well, you know, if there's a God, why didn't he stop this from happening? And of course, we have to always look at the crucifix. We remember that God truly loves us. So I prayed to Newman constantly, and I cried in his ear, and I cried to his holy card, and I was a mess. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And I was so sad, and I lost the baby. And as soon as I lost the baby, I said, Do I still believe in Jesus? <coughs> yes. Do I still believe that he loves me? Yes. Do I still want to be Catholic? Yes. Do I know why this happened? No. Do I need to know everything? No. But I know he loves me. So I credited Newman for that, for keeping me in my faith. And I said, Oh, thank you, Cardinal Newman. Thank you so much. I lost the baby, but I did not lose my faith. And almost with like childlike exuberance, I blurted out, Thank you, Cardinal Newman. I'll never ask you for anything ever again. 
Because I figured I had my faith. What more would you want, right? Because that's all we need to get to heaven. (laughs) And I wanted him to know that I wasn't just using him up for favors. He'd been so good to me in so many ways. And I wanted him to know that I loved him unconditionally. And I said, Cardinal Newman, I want you to know that I love you no matter what. I don't need you to do anything else for me ever again. I'll pray to you for the needs of others, but I won't ask you for anything for myself. I'll prove my love to you. Okay, so that seemed like a good idea. (laughs) And then in April, I was pregnant again, April 2013, a couple months later, and I was losing a lot of blood in this pregnancy. I hadn't been losing blood in the miscarriage pregnancy, so this did not look like a good sign. I went to the doctor, and I was thrilled the baby had a heartbeat, so that was good. But the bad news was my placenta was partially detached from the uterine wall. It was ripped, and this was a, it looked like a bad injury, and blood was escaping through that hole. The doctor said there was no medicine or surgical procedure that we could do. And I was in my first trimester, so the baby had to remain in the pregnancy. If I had been in my third, we could have done a C-section and taken the baby out. But the baby was way too underdeveloped. It was only April, and she was due January 1st. So I had a long time left in the pregnancy. So he said, the doctor, you need, the only thing I can say is you need strict bed rest. That it's possible that if you lay in bed for many months, the cells could grow and they could start to heal this wound. And at the time, I had four children, six, five, three, and one years of age, and David had to work. So laying in bed every day from April to January 1st was not an option. But I wasn't doing any exercise, that's for sure. And I wasn't cleaning the house. The place was a disaster. And I wasn't cooking. We were all constantly on a picnic of sandwiches. It sounded fun at first, but it gets old after a few weeks. Um, And uh, the kids were amazing. They were helping me out because they knew I wasn't feeling well. They didn't know what was wrong with me. We didn't want to scare them. They're very young. But it's amazing about children. And I think that's why God says, you know, you need to be like children to enter into the kingdom of God. Because they didn't ask, well, what do you mean you need help? Well, what's wrong with you? You know, they just said, okay, sure, we'll help. And that's how we need to be, right? Ready to help. And they helped each other. My six-year-old son, he got my three-year-old son dressed. And it was May, and he was wearing corduroy pants, heavy sweaters, backwards. And my five-year-old daughter got my one-year-old daughter dressed. And the buttons never lined up, and the patterns were crazy. And the thing I worried about is, I was always told, if the bleeding got really bad, you need to call 911. And I thought, if the paramedics come, and they see the scene of the kids and the food all over the floor, I say, what is going on in this house? (laughs) But uh, that's the best we could do. And sometimes you can only do your best. And I certainly wasn't going to hemorrhage to death for cleaning the house. But it was a very delicate situation. I couldn't lift things. I couldn't lift a book. I couldn't lift a gallon of milk. It would cause the bleeding to get even heavier. So I was walking around very carefully and nervously all the time. One time I was sitting on the sofa, and my three-year-old jumped on the other end of the sofa, and I, I raised up just like a centimeter, and all this blood came rushing out. And I'm not trying to be gross, but I want you to know how bad it was and how sensitive it was. 
And in there I also had what's called a subchorionic hematoma. I had this blood clot that had developed from all the bleeding, which was two and a half times the size of my daughter, Gemma, in there, and putting pressure on her. So it was a real mess in there. And on May 10th, I had to go to the emergency room because it was so bad. And I went to the nearest emergency room because I didn't even have time to get to the one where my doctor worked. So I got there and they said the baby's heart was still beating, thank God. And they called my doctor on the phone and he said, you're going to probably lose this baby. Um, and there's nothing I can do. Again, the only thing, and he sounded sad. And I'm sure he felt even kind of foolish because what can he say? For, I felt bad for him. You know, and he said, you know, strict bed rest is all I can say. And I wasn't doing much as it was. So I thought, oh, no, this isn't looking good. But they let me out of the hospital that weekend, and David took care of the house and did his best while he's still working. And I laid in bed that whole weekend, still losing blood for weeks, no matter what. And I was dreading that Monday morning, David had to go back to work. He had already missed enough time for that miscarriage, which happened a few months prior. Plus, we had until January 1, so how do you know when to take a day here and there? You just don't know the future. So he went back to work that Monday, and the kids were helping me just as before, and doing whatever they could do. My oldest son, would, uh, who was six, would hold my one-year-old from the second floor and slide down the steps like a toboggan. Because she couldn't walk down the steps, I couldn't lift her. And it was the scariest thing. I said, please, don't let go of her. And they loved it. They laughed. You know, it was a thrill to them, but I was a nervous wreck. But, but anyway, we got through that, and then, you know, I was still losing all the blood during the day, and David would come home at night, dishes to the ceiling, laundry everywhere, and he would just jump right in uh, and do everything. It was really beautiful. So in the midst of all this sadness, there was a lot of, you know, blessings and joy in a way to see your family doing so much for you. Of course, it was beautiful. Well, the worst thing about that week was on that Wednesday morning, on May 15th, David had to go to Atlanta for two days on a business trip. It was a trip that had been postponed and rescheduled, and he had to go in order to keep his job. And so I was dreading that so badly. It was bad enough that he had to go to work in Chicago. Um, we live in the suburbs, but to go on an airplane out of town. And we had no family nearby. So I was hoping that day would never come, but it came, and the night before he left, he said, do you want me to wake you up in the morning before I go? And I said, no, because I thought, I don't want to have to tell him bye. I would want to talk him out of it, which wouldn't be good for the family, for him to not have his job. And my husband's sweet enough, he might not go. <laughs> and then what would we be doing? Um, finding him a new job while I'm losing all this blood. So. On that Wednesday, I woke up that morning and he had already left and I woke up in a pool of blood. So things were as bad as they had ever been and I had just gotten out of the emergency room five days earlier. And I thought, oh no, what am I gonna do? Um, I thought I would get the kids set up for breakfast. I would take care of the kids, they would eat and then I would really focus on myself. So I got them to the kitchen and I got them Cheerios and yogurt. We weren't cooking anything and I looked at them, the four of them, and I said, Stay in your seats and don't get up no matter what. And I gave that kind of that mom face that says, I mean it, you know. The no makeup mom face, it's really scary. And they looked at me, okay. And I knew, I knew they would get up, but I wanted as much time as I could get out of them. I knew somebody would get up, not to be disobedient necessarily, but little kids have short-term memories. 
and they want to see me at some point. So I thought, well, at least buy me some time. So they were in their seats, and I thought, I'm going to go upstairs, and I'm going to close the door, because I don't want them sneaking up on me and seeing all the bleeding. This was a bad scene. So they were at the kitchen. I went upstairs. I shut the bedroom door, and I went in the bathroom, and I shut that door as well. And by the time I got to the bathroom, I collapsed on the floor. I had been losing so much blood, and I was very weak, and I dropped to the floor, and I thought, oh, no, this is bad. And David was on an airplane, still flying to Atlanta. And my kids, the four of them, were downstairs in the kitchen. And I thought, okay, maybe I should call 911. I didn't want to call 911 before because I didn't know who would watch the kids. I guess the paramedics? I don't know. You know, I've never, who do you ask? How does this work? I don't know. And I didn't want them to be scared. But at this point, the kids finding me on the floor in the bathroom would be worse than being watched by strangers, paramedics, of course. So I said, I better call 911. I did not have my phone in the bathroom. I couldn't believe it. I didn't have it with me, and I didn't even know where it was. If it had been maybe around the corner, maybe I could have crawled to get it, but I had no memory of where I put it. So I didn't have my phone, so calling 911 was not an option. So my next thought was, one of the kids is surely gonna come up any minute now, right? And I'll say, hey, go get the house phone in a hurry. It was silent downstairs. Now, I had told them to stay in their seats, but I didn't tell them to be silent. So I was worrying about them. I mean, what's going on? I should hear conversation or noise of some sort, but it was perfectly silent. And I thought, they got out of the house. They're putting the spoons in the light sockets. I don't know. So the panic was really setting in. I'm hemorrhaging up here. I can't call 911. My four kids are who knows where doing who knows what. So then my next thought was I should scream, right? Scream for help. But as I told you, the bleeding was so sensitive that even a sneeze could kill me because the placenta was not fully attached. And if it became fully detached, I would instantly bleed to death, like in less than a minute. So I did not feel comfortable screaming for good reason. So I couldn't scream through two closed doors. And even after that, the kids would have to come up and then go find the phone. So that was not an option. So in a moment of desperation, I said, without having a phone or anyone to help me, not able to scream, I said, please, Cardinal Newman, make the bleeding stop. Just then it stopped. It stopped and it never came back permanently. And I was standing in the bathroom. And I don't remember standing up, but somehow I stood myself up, which is remarkable, because I was very weak. And I looked around and I said, Cardinal Newman, did you just make the bleeding stop? Thank you. I knew he did. And just then the bathroom filled with the most amazing scent of roses. And I inhaled this scent, and it was amazing, intense. And I said, oh, thank you, Cardinal Newman. Did you just make those roses? And then he made a second blast of roses in the bathroom. And I knew I was cured. I mean, that doesn't, that's not a coincidence, you know, that never happened to me. So I felt confident to get downstairs and see what was going on with my kids. <laughs> I said, thank you, Cardinal Newman. So I decided as I'm hustling down the steps, that I'm going to ask, what are you doing to the kids? 
So I'm going down the steps and I get to the kitchen and the four of them are sitting there at the table and I see them sitting there and I said, what are you doing? And my oldest son looks at me and he said, well, we're just sitting here, just like you asked us to. And I stuck to my script and I said, I know, but I told you not to get up. Okay, so the moral of this story is almost dying and being miraculously cured can make it hard to understand what's going on in real time. And I was amazed. And I said, oh my goodness, yeah, you are all here. And they were kind of smiling, thinking, what is mom talking about? And I sat down with them just then, and I said, thank you, Cardinal Newman. I felt like he kept them safe for me. And as I said that, there was a third and the final blast of roses that filled the kitchen as I thanked him. Almost as if the roses were an affirmation. Yes, you're welcome. And I smelled the roses and I was thrilled because my kids were there that they could experience this. So as the roses are going, I look at my son who's an arm's length away from me and I said, wow, do you smell the roses? Isn't this amazing? Then he smiled again at me and said, what roses? And I said, it's so obvious. I mean, it was overpoweringly obvious. And he said, no, I don't know what, what you're talking about. So I looked left, and I thought, well, my daughter, surely she can smell the rose. So I said, you smell them, right? And she said, no. And I was encouraging them to flare out their nostrils and all, and we were all doing it, and they couldn't smell the roses. They remember me asking them, but they weren't able to smell them. So it's a mystery. Maybe because I physically was cured, I could smell them. I don't know. But uh, (laughs) it's a great gift. And so then the phone rang, and David said, oh my gosh, I can't wait to talk to David. He doesn't know that I almost died, and that I was miraculously cured. (laughs) I got a lot to catch up on. (laughs) So I I get the phone, and I think, how am I going to start this conversation? This is exciting. And I get the phone, and David said, okay. I'm in Atlanta, and something got goofed up with my hotel. They can't find my reservation. I have nowhere to stay tonight, but if I hustle over to this other hotel, they might have a room left. I only have literally one minute. How's everything going? (laughs) And I thought, I don't want to ruin this moment and cram it into 60 seconds, you know? So I said, well, everything is going fine. You have nothing to worry about. Things are great. Get your hotel, take your time, call me back when you have a second. He said, what do you mean things are going fine? You were just in the emergency room five days ago. I said, just trust me. Just everything's going to be fine. Get your hotel and call me back. So he called me back really quickly after that. I think by saying everything was fine, it made him more nervous (laughs) than if I said there was a problem. Maybe he thought I was going to sugarcoat something for him. I don't know. But he called me back, and I told him what happened. And I was very excited because that afternoon I had an ultrasound. I had many ultrasounds leading up to this day, showing the damage, showing the placenta ripped, the subchorionic hematoma, all the blood pouring out. And I had an ultrasound that day because I was a high-risk pregnancy, so I had multiple in a week. So I just happened to have one that day, and I couldn't wait. For the first time, I was excited to go, and I wanted to see what would the doctor say, right? And what do I tell him? Do I tell him I think I was cured? Or do I just wait and see what he says? You know. So I, dro- I, I got there, I drove, and uh, he did an ultrasound. And he said, everything looks perfect. And he was amazed. And um, he said, the baby looks perfect. 
I wanted to say, well, how about that placenta too, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but he, of course, good doctors, mostly worried about the baby. And um, I did not tell him about the miracle right then and there. You know, I did tell him later, of course, because he had to testify. Um, thanks be to God, he, he was willing to do all of that. Um, but anyway, he, he said, you know, I think you should still take it easy, though. You should still be careful just to be safe, you know, because he's a doctor, you know. And I'm a lawyer. How scary, right? <laughs> Telling the lawyer, go back, go have fun. Hopefully nothing bad will happen. You won't sue me, right? So, but anyway, no, he said, just, you know, just take it easy. But I didn't want to take it easy. I had been a spectator in my life for too long. You know, I wanted to be a mom. I wanted to do all the mom things. I wanted to cook. I wanted to clean. I wanted to get on the floor and roll around with the kids and read books. I didn't want to be worried if someone sat on me too hard, you know. <laughs> so as I was driving home, I was thanking Cardinal Newman over and over. And again, my words were not profound. All I could come up with, with was thank you, thank you. I'm driving home and I'm crying and I said, thank you, thank you. And I get to my house and the day had been sunny all day. And when I mean sunny, it was one of those days where the, the sky is just perfectly blue. Not a cloud in the sky. Not a cloud. And I get to our house, and just then, as across from my house, I see there's this huge rainbow. And I have my phone with me this time, so I take a picture of it. And I take a picture, and I think, wow, that's amazing. And I was thanking Newman. So I felt like it was a sign from him. Newman is a genius, and he used to memorize whole books of the Bible. And I remember there was a rainbow in the Bible in the story of Noah and Genesis. So I wanted to know, what was he trying to tell me? So I went in the house as soon as I got back from this appointment. And the kids were excited to see me. And I said, oh, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. So I grabbed the Bible, opened it up, and I'm flipping around. And I found the part about the rainbow. And I read, and it said, a rain the rainbow was a sign from God that there would be no more flooding. I took that to mean there would be no more hemorrhaging. Newman was telling me it was okay. You can be a mom. You can be a full mom now. And I kept reading in that passage, and it said that the rainbow was a sign of God's covenant with mankind to be fruitful and multiply. And here I was, going to have a baby. And since Gemma, we've had two more kids after her. Totally normal pregnancies, no problems. So... Later on, I got that picture developed of that rainbow, and I didn't notice it at the time, but there was actually a second rainbow in reverse order of colors. So I feel like the main rainbow was me, and the second one, which is derivative of the main, is like Gemma. And when I testified about my cure, I provided weather records and those date stamp photos, and the weather records showed 0, 0.0 precipitation in my zip code. And you can't have a rainbow without a trace of moisture. So that was amazing. So we, uh, I reported my cure, and the, uh, as you know, it was approved. But I want to tell you how I found out about it, how it was approved. It was, um, it was this year, of course, when the Pope approved it. And I had my son, my youngest, Blaze, who's now 10 months. He was born on January 3rd. And uh, as I said in the beginning, I'm a nursing mother. And as a mom, you get up a lot in the night to nurse in those early months, like two and three times. 
and you need to get back to sleep as soon as you can because you have a busy life, you know, you can't stay up all night. But it can be tempting in the night to stay up because it's quiet. You can actually think and read and do things like that. But I, I told myself I wasn't going to read any news stories because I didn't want to have trouble going back to sleep. So I didn't look at my phone in the night. I would nurse him and then put him to sleep and then go back to sleep. But on February 13th, in the middle of the night, as I was nursing him, I really wanted to look at my phone. I wanted to look at news stories. And I like going to the Catholic Herald. It's a great website, a UK publication. So in the middle of the night as our nursing blaze, I pull up my phone and I go to the Catholic Herald and it says, just then breaking news, that the Pope had approved the miracle for the canonization. And that's how I found out about it as a nursing mother in the middle of the night. And just as I had thought, I did have trouble going back to sleep. <laughs> so that is my story of my cure, and I would love to take questions. <laughs> yes? Did you find out how was it Well, that afternoon of the day I was cured, the doctor performed an ultrasound, and he said it looked great. Now, doctors are a little nervous to say everything's perfect. If you notice, no matter what, it's never going to be 100% in their minds, except for the passage of time. So he said it looked perfect, but he wasn't expecting a miracle. So he said, I still want you to come back for ultrasounds. And at first I was disappointed in that because I thought, well, I've been cured. What's the point of all this? But then I realized I could see my baby with each ultrasound. So I thought, well, that's great. And with each ultrasound, he said, yes, this placenta is, is, is great. It's perfect. There's no damage. And there was no sign of that subchorionic hematoma. And what was great about that, too, that he went along with that program of, of you know, my medical treatment is all of that was provided to the church. So they had all of those ultrasounds before my cure and all of them after, showing a, a complete change. Not a gradual recovery, but a completely destructive scene and then a perfect scene and so many different ultrasounds on both sides. Yes? Yeah, that's a great question. I was really nervous. You know, I hadn't had that kind of a conversation with anyone else before, and I had no one else to talk to about it. You know, you talk to your friends or family members, you can't say, hey. What was it like when you asked your doctor to write a report for the archdiocese when you were miraculously cured? You know, so I was definitely in new territory. And um, the first thing we did, you know, my family and I, David, is we reported the my case to the postulator. Remember Father Connor was talking about the postulator in Rome, and we met with him in Chicago, and he said, we would want your doctor to testify, you know, because, um, you know, we need evidence. We need his words, plus the whole medical file, and then we would, they also had three independent doctors in Chicago look at everything, and then in Rome, lots of doctors, so it goes through lots of study, a lot of study. But I prayed a lot, and I thought, oh my goodness, what's he going to think? What's he going to think of me, you know? And I found out he, he is Catholic. 
but it never came up when we were interacting, you know. And just because you're Catholic doesn't mean necessarily you believe in miracles. You know, they're all, there's a whole spectrum of Catholics. <laughs> so I didn't know where he would stand on this. But I, I just prayed, and I was very nervous. And I'll be honest, a part of me did not want to have that conversation because I was so afraid. But I felt like I owed it to Newman. He cured me. He saved my life and the life of my daughter. The least that I could do would be to go in there. And if this doctor thought I was a fool, I would do it for Newman, and it would show my love for him. And if he laughed at me, ran me out of his office, I could say afterwards, Cardinal Newman, I love you. I did it for you. I felt like I owed it to you, you know, whatever the cost. So, but thanks be to God, you know, I, I told him, and he said, wow, really, that's amazing. <laughs> so it was, it was a good start, and I, and I said, well, they're, they're going to want you to talk to them in the church, and write some reports, and just give your, your assessment. But I think he liked knowing, because before that, he wasn't sure what happened. You know, as I said, what made my case nice for the church is I wasn't taking any medicine. Sometimes someone's cured, and they're on medicine, and the church has to has to find out whether the medicine was a factor and how big of a factor. I mean, I was not on anything. So that made my case really nice and clean. There could be no medical explanation. And there was no scientific explanation because cells do not grow back that quickly, instantly. Um, so the doctor, I think, was pleased and he seemed a little excited about it. Uh, but I still had to really get him to participate because he was a busy doctor. And although he was interested, he wasn't necessarily as passionate as I was. So I had to remind him gently but firmly, they still need uh, you to call them back, and they still need a report. But he, he did everything eventually, <laughs> thanks be to God. So that's how it was. <laughs> Any more questions? Yes? So then did you suffer from a lot of Yes, I was taking just a prenatal vitamin with iron. Um, I suffered after I was cured from no weakness. David came back from his trip that Friday, so he stayed those two full days, and I was a full mom, you know, and with no worries. Um, my daughter, if she had survived the pregnancy, which was unlikely, was supposed to be born early because the doctor said the placenta could never go the distance. It would definitely not make it to January 1st. Well, at the end of December, I was still pregnant, and the doctor induced me. So who would have ever thought that I would have been induced with a delicate placenta? So we were putting a lot of chemicals into that placenta to get it to, to move. <laughs> so we really tested it. Um, and she was born eight and a half pounds. The average baby is seven and a half. She was definitely not born small or early, and she was fully healthy. She just had her first piano recital. She can read, she rides a bike. She's really funny, um, <laughs> really sweet. So, she, so thanks be to God. And that's another thing the church wanted to study to make sure that she was healthy because the theory is that if God's gonna perform a miracle, it's gonna be complete, no uh, residual effects. And so she's perfectly healthy. Thanks be to God. Yes? Well, it's a, it's a good observation you made. Um, when I testified 
uh, first it starts in the Archdiocese of Chicago. The local place opens the cause, and then it goes to Rome if it surpasses the, the local test. I took an oath, and I was told not to say anything while it was under study. So it wasn't until this year that I've been able to talk about this. And I must say, I never felt pressure to keep silent. I never felt like they were being oppressive. I knew they always had the best intent for the process to work properly without having to try the case in the press at the same time. Because they're asking doctors to participate in the study. And it was also for my own protection. Let's say they found out there wasn't a miracle. My name was splashed all over the place. And I'd forever be famous as the one who thought she was miraculously cured. Now, I had a really good feeling, of course. But, you know, you've got to trust the process. So I did not tell my church. I did not tell anyone. David and I knew, and we took this oath very seriously. So we didn't tell anyone. It wasn't until this year that we've started telling people. Oh, sure. I'm sorry. It was a lot of Newman and me, but I will tell you something interesting. In 2011, I, was, uh, I went to confession in December. It makes it sound funny like I've been once in my whole life. But I mean, I just remember this in particular because it was such an unusual uh, uh, time uh, in the confessional. And I'll explain what I mean. So this was a parish priest. And I had been to his confessions many times before. And he didn't know it was me. You know, I was behind the screen. And I don't even think he knew my name, you know, at the time. But I was in confession and I was listing off my sins. And in the middle of it, he said, do you know what a charism is? And he interrupted me. And I said, that's weird. It usually never interrupts me. And I said, no, uh, I don't. And he said, well, you have a charism. Mary is standing right beside you. And you are going to help her build up the church. And I thought, whoa, what is that? And then as soon as I thought, well, that sounds amazing, he said, okay, go ahead with your sins. <laughs> so back to earth. So I finished my sins, and uh, I went home, and I said to David, and this was about the time I started praying to Newman, right? And I said, what do you, you, know, what do you think that means? And he said, I don't know, you know. And I said, well, don't we all have a, a mission to build up the church? I mean, every time I have a child, we get the baby baptized, we're building up the church. So I thought, well, you know, maybe that's just his way of saying building up the church. But now Newman's been canonized. And, of course, that's a, a beautiful way to build up our church. So as far as my parish, the priests there were lovely. Um, I did not seek spiritual direction from my local church. You know, I went to confession and got great advice in confession. Um, so, but Newman was my, in a way, my spiritual guide. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I had already been praying to Newman constantly. So even before the miracle, the kids and David were used to Newman this and Newman that, and Newman this and Newman that. 
So in that sense, nothing changed. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're very grateful. But we're, we're very busy in, in our ordinary ways. So it may surprise you to think that, you know, we give thanks to God. And we feel like he's very present in our family and in our lives. But it's time to empty the dishwasher. You know, it's time to brush the kids' teeth. Oh, if somebody needs a, a checkup. Oh, David's got to get to work extra early tomorrow. Oh, you know, so, you know, in a way, you know, we're, our, our gratitude changed, you know, to be so thankful and uh, to know he's so close to us. But our ordinary lives in terms of the day-to-day really remained very much the same. <laughs> we always do, though, I should tell you, celebrate his feast day in our family and commemorate the important days of his life. So the day he became cardinal, the day he died, his feast day, um, his birthday. So we celebrate those days. <laughs> yes? Yes. Yes, well, I had Newman. <laughs> um, so the beatification, yes. Uh, a man named Jack Sullivan, who's a deacon in Boston, was cured from a crippling spinal disorder. And I believe he was cured in 2000. And then Newman was beatified as a result in 2010. In England, and Pope Benedict XVI went to the beatification, as you may know, which is remarkable, because I think right before that, he made um, some kind of an announcement that popes do not need to go to local beatifications. So it's a, a definite sign of his affection for Newman. Um, and then, uh, I'm sorry, your second question was about family and friends. Yes, I have no brothers and sisters, okay? My parents um, got divorced when I was a baby, so I don't have any brothers and sisters. And my husband's from Texas, and he was the youngest by far of, of the kids, and his parents are elderly. They're wonderful people, but they're very elderly. And watching four kids is a lot of work. And they were still working at that time, too. So, um, you know, and, and David had siblings who were working in Texas, and they had jobs they had to maintain. So nobody had the ability to just drop everything and, and come stay with us for seven months. Um, and the reason I was able to do those ultrasounds was because we had a high school babysitter who would come over after she got out of high school a couple times a week just for a few hours so I could go and do my checkups. But that's, that's all I could get. Um, you know, we're not from Chicago. We didn't really know anyone. We're fairly new to our neighborhood. Uh, so we were just trying to do everything on our own. And I think that, you know, there is a lot of loneliness in the world now. I know we have all these great gadgets and phones and all this stuff, but in a way, we've never been more connected and sometimes never felt more alone. <laughs> so if you feel alone, you can reach out to Newman because he's definitely sympathetic to the people that are trying to make it in a, in a lonely world. <laughs> um, so, Yes? I'm curious about the conversation you, when you finally did get to have I told him on the phone when he called back we talked and I told him everything 
And uh, I, I did wonder, what's he going to think, you know? Is he going to think she's lost so much blood, she's gone crazy? <laughs> or is he going to believe me? And he believed me. And, uh, you know, I think he was just in awe. And it was just, it was just such a blessing that he believed me. And then he knew I had that ultrasound that afternoon. So we were excited to see what that would say, and it confirmed everything that I had suspected. And, and yeah, so I did tell him. I couldn't wait to tell him. I just didn't want to cram it into 60 seconds. You know? <laughs> yes? Do you think that there's any significance to the scent of roses? Uh, that's a good question. I think that uh, the scent of roses, people have told me, you know, we went to the canonization. And um, people have told me that that is a scent that people have experienced in various times of reaching out to the saints. I don't know if you mean specifically with Newman. Um, it's a good question. I mean, it's definitely a heavenly scent. Uh, it's a beautiful scent. And since that happened, I went to the grocery store or to the market, and I would smell roses, and I would inhale them because I wanted to replicate that. It was so beautiful. But nothing compares to it. Nothing is as, is as intense or as beautiful. And uh, it's related, like a far distant cousin, a smell of roses on the earth, but it's just not the same. Um, it's hard to explain, but roses on the earth have a sour finish. Next time you smell roses, you really inhale them. It has this beautiful bright start, and then it kind of ends with a sour note. But the heavenly scent doesn't have that sour finish. I know, because I've smelled millions of them <laughs> trying to, to do this all over again. But it, I can't repeat it myself. Um, and then every once in a while, I'll be somewhere, and there will be roses, you know, and I'll get a whiff of them, and I'll think, Newman, is that you? You know, and then there's a bouquet of roses, and I, okay, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, uh, I, I think it's just a sign of love and uh, just beauty. And God is, is beautiful and loves us. And so imagine what heaven's like if just a scent of roses can be so amazing, you know. Question. What was your next step? Did you go to the parish priest or did you. What's the process? For reporting it, you mean? Yes. Well, I had to find out who to report it to, and I wasn't sure. So I did some research, and I found out that the postulator for the beatification in Rome was Dr. Andrea Ambrosi. He's a doctor because he's a canon lawyer, like a JD, PhD, not a medical doctor. So I uh, sent my, my letter, a letter to him describing everything, and he said he would just so happen to be in Chicago later that year, and that he would meet with David and me while he was already in town, so we could talk about it. So he came into Chicago. He was working on other matters, other cases. You know, God's doing great things all the time. And so we met with him, and I was nursing Gemma at the time, so she went with us. And so we got to see Gemma, which was great. And I presented to him what I had of my file, and he said he was interested. So that was exciting. But he said he would need everything, the whole file, all the records, all the ultrasounds, uh, lab reports. Isn't it amazing to think that Rome has all my blood pressure records? <laughs> Isn't that strange? But he said he would need everything. If they couldn't get it all, they couldn't, they couldn't study it. You know, the church is very serious about this stuff. <laughs> uh, 
So he wanted all of that, and then that's when he said we would want your doctor to testify as well. And, and he said, can you ask him? And that if he wouldn't testify, it probably wouldn't work. And uh, so that's, that was the next step I provided. I, I had to get records from the hospital when I went to the emergency room. It was a different hospital from the hospital for the ultrasounds, the labs, all that stuff. So it was a lot of compiling information. And at that point, I finally, I thought, maybe this is why I went to law school, you know? Because I had such a short legal career, but I was able to get all these records and make them look nice and compile them and write persuasive letters, you know, that I need this stuff and I need it now. So, uh, so that's how it, how it started. <laughs> sure? Well, can we get maybe so one more question? <laughs> right. Yes, I was better. And um, we actually went on vacation a couple of weeks after that, um, which we never would have done if I you know, had a life-threatening hemorrhage. Um, I took the kids to the park. I had pictures of me pushing them on swings, which you, know, you couldn't do if you had a rib placenta. Pregnant, pushing. Um, as a matter of fact, a week after I was cured, exactly one week after, I started having morning sickness for four months. So for four months, several times a day, I just vomited my brains out. And I'll tell you, if that placenta hadn't been healed, that would have been the end of it, because it was rigorous. But, and I, that first time it happened, I thought, wow, this is the test. And thank God I was cured. I know that sounds gross, but it is all part of the medical file that they studied. And yeah, no, I, I got to be a full mom and be right back in the game. And, uh, and I loved it, and I never took it for granted then. You know, I mean, before I might say, gosh, I really don't feel like cooking dinner sometimes or doing laundry. But after that, I realized everything was a blessing, that I was able to move, to walk. And um, I was probably even a little annoying to the kids. You know, I wanted to play more. I wanted to read more and run. And, you know, I mean, I don't think they were annoyed, but I could have been. You know, I just felt like I, I just couldn't get enough of them. So I don't know if they were wearing matching outfits, though. But... <laughs> But they were at least wearing the right season of clothing at that time. <laughs> Let me do one more question, sorry. Um, actually, um, how long was What was the last part? I'm sorry. Um, okay, so for the first question for the reporting, I wanted to report it right away, you know, from the bathroom, literally. As soon as I smelled the roses, I was like, now I'm going to find my phone and call the Vatican. But um, <laughs> I realized something, though, that I, I don't know how I knew this, but I just knew that without Gemma being born healthy, that they probably weren't going to open a case, you know. That would be a necessary element to this. So I waited until she was born. And thanks be to God, she was born, obviously, as you know, healthy. And I remember as soon as she was born, I looked at the nurse in labor and delivery, and I looked at her and I said, you know, in my first trimester, I had a, a partially detached placenta because she was eight and a half pounds. And the nurse looked at me like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and at first I thought, well, that wasn't very nice. And then I realized, 
realized, of course she looked at me like that. It was a miracle. It's not supposed to be this way. So, um, but anyway, yeah. And then I, I, I thought, that's great. You know, it proves it, how strange this was. Um, so after she was born, um, that's when I reported it. And uh, she was born in December, late December 2013. So I reported it in 2014, a few months after she was born. And then they visited us from Rome in September. I said they, the postulator and his translator. They were already coming in September that year. So that's the first time we met. Um, because it was a new case and, you know, he doesn't know me, didn't know the evidence. It made sense that they didn't pay for an extra flight from Rome, you know, to come, but they were already coming. So that's when we first met. Um, and then your second question about the doctor, um, you know, he just did a lot of ultrasounds uh, after I was cured. I kept several appointments still in the books, and I was coming and coming. And at some point, I remember it was just always good news. And here I was coming for several ultrasounds a week. You know, I think he realized, okay, you don't need to keep coming, you know. Um, and I wasn't, wasn't losing any blood. And I, was, uh, and I was telling him that I was just living a normal life as a mom. And uh, so as far as any other tests, I mean, that's, that's the best thing they could use to see everything was the ultrasound. Um, other than that, I didn't have anything, anything done. Mm-hmm. Why don't we give Melissa uh, a